0: to QAV, episode 538, recording this on Tuesday the 27th of September, about 4.05pm Brisbane time, for the record. How are you, TK? <laughs> You're
1: good. I was going to say, is it welcome back? <laughs> <laughs> Commiserations. <laughs> tough week in the market. Very tough. I'm good,
0: though. Oh, that's good. That's good. What have you been up to in the last week since we uh, did a show, TK? apart From selling off all your stocks, <laughs>
1: yeah, at least half of them, yeah, pretty social. We had that. Well, th- Thursday was a holiday, so I caught up with all the friends, celebrated a birthday, went out for lunch. Friday, caught up with some friends. Friday night, I hadn't been down to Clay Street Bistro, which is down the road from us, and went there on Friday night with some friends. Really good. If anyone lives in the area or travels to the area, I recommend it. Great place, and then uh, as Roy and HG would say, Festival of the Boot over the weekend with uh, the AFL Grand Final. We had, had a mate round to watch that. And then uh, the NRL semi-final Saturday night and a bit of horse racing in between. Right. So very, very social. You? Yeah, I've been up at Butterberg for
0: the last week, just got back about 45 minutes ago and uh, had a great time with visiting my mum and Chrissy and I. Spent a lot of time sort of on the beach, a little bit during the day, every day with Fox and at skate parks. And then in the night times, Chrissy and I would try and sneak down there and just lie on the sand and watch the sunset and look up at the Milky Way and uh, just uh, chillax, which was good, With the uh, particularly with the market just collapsing around us. Take my mind off it, go and relax. Yesterday, of course, was uh, Stanislav Petrov Day, a day that... Um, I uh, commemorate uh, Sunday was the anniversary of my 21st anniversary of my dad's uh, passing, my dad's death. So I uh, made his favorite dish, uh, well, his go to dish, which is mince and beans, cowboy dinner, as my Scottish grandmother called it, uh-huh. just mince and baked beans. There's a bit of a tradition for me to remember him. Oh, that's, that's nice. And then uh, Monday was Stanislav Petrov Day. Do you, um, do you celebrate Stanislav Petrov Day?
1: I think I missed it this year, Cam, and last year as well from memory.
0: Well, you can pour one out for him, for people who (laughs) don't know Stanislav Petrov. He was a lieutenant colonel in the Soviet Air Defence Forces, 1983, September 26, 1983, three weeks after the Soviet military had shot down Korean Airlines flight 007, Petrov was the duty officer in um, a nuclear early warning facility and in the Soviet Union, Okko, and uh, their system reported that a missile had been launched from the United States and then five more missiles had been launched from the United States. He was given orders to launch nuclear weapons against the United States uh, defensively, and he refused to obey orders, believing that the system was malfunctioning. And uh, got, and as it was, <laughs> and consequently avoided nuclear disaster. So oh. uh, there you go. So I always uh, try and remember him because if it wasn't for him, who knows what the world would look like today? So there you go, Stanislav Petrov.
1: I thought you were going to talk about the Petrov affair.
0: Uh, different,
1: different uh, Petrov. Or well, maybe the son possibly of. Possibly related.
0: Yeah, maybe. Who knows? <laughs> no, his father flew uh, fighter aircraft in World War Two. Anyway, he died in uh, 2017, age 77. But I think it's worthwhile remembering his memory. And just to the kids out there, it's always a good idea to disobey orders from time to time. <laughs> from time to time.
1: <laughs> <laughs> Unless I'm giving him. Especially if they involve Armageddon.
0: Yeah, yeah. Fox must be a big fan of his because he never listens to anything I ever say, (laughs) or to my other kids for that matter. Uh, Anyway, on with investing news. We'll get to the markets and everything a bit later. Some interesting stories I've uh, read this week, apart from all the doom and gloom. The uh, Financial Review uh, on September 21st had an article about the uh, fund manager performance tables in Australia. It's always fun to have a look at. On a one-year basis, the best performer was Melbourne-based DAT Capital, whose absolute return fund did 20.63% in the year, uh, mostly because of bets on Whitehaven Coal and New Hope, some of our favourite stocks in the last yeah, year as yeah, well. Until yesterday. <laughs> yeah, but uh, they must have been heavily weighted on those because we've had them, yeah. I think, and uh, you know, it hasn't helped our portfolio. Well, it has helped our portfolio, but it didn't. We certainly haven't achieved 20.63% in the last year, so congratulations to those guys. But um, when you go down, let's say then there's Lazard Select Australian Equity Fund, 20.41% for the year. They had big chunks of their portfolio in QBE, another good QAV stock, Woodside and Whitehaven, all good QAV stocks. But, uh, of course, when you uh, go down the ranks, uh, Australian Eagle Growth, high conviction, 14.27%. In retrospect, they weren't as highly convicted as uh, they thought they were at the beginning. And, you know, there's a few others down there as well. But um, on a seven-year basis, they don't all do that well. Uh, When you look at them over long
1: term. Sorry, excuse me. Do you have a three-year basis there at all?
0: No, not in this article. And I didn't pull up the – there's no link actually in this article to the actual um, performance tables, which doesn't help. would be nice if they actually gave me a link. But, uh, yeah, we, we, it says that on a seven-year basis, some of the more recent winners fall off the top five because they haven't been around long enough. But, uh, yeah, some good performance there numbers on, the, on, a, on a one-year basis. Oh, sorry, we do have a three-year basis. I didn't read, for, I didn't read enough. DAT Capital number one spot with 22.9% over three years, followed by our friends at Collins Street Value 22.6% and Samuel Terry Absolute Return
1: 15.82%. percent Yes, good numbers for the last three years. They are, yeah. And we know that Collins Street is a value fund, so that's good. So we would have sorted in where. The dummy portfolio, I think, was 15-odd percent over three years something like that. Yeah. So we'd be you know, probably in the top three or four
0: if we were being compared on a three-year basis. We just celebrated our three-year anniversary on the 2nd of September, it would have been. So there you go. But they're good numbers and congratulations to those funds. We forgot to celebrate our third
1: anniversary (laughs) of the dummy portfolio. But yeah, it puts things in perspective, doesn't it? I mean, it's been horrible selling things in the last few days, but We would have the dummy portfolios ranked three or four in Australia. That's pretty good. Yeah. So congratulations to you, Tony. Well, thank you. Yeah, and congratulations to the other guys too. But uh, I guess my comments on these kinds of tables are to look at the longer-term ones, the longer-term results. So three years and out with at least. Whenever I look at tables like this, if they've got something even longer since inception, that's the best to look at. And certainly if it goes back to take into account a downturn in the market. So if you're looking how long's COVID been. So probably yeah, three of the years might just cover COVID, but um, you know, longer the better. Um, to try and compare funds. I guess, you know, if you're new to the market and you see someone like Collins Street Value Fund, for example, do well and you like their process, you might invest some with them. But yeah, I certainly rely on longer term performance numbers over shorter term ones.
0: Oh, let me see. What else have I got? Here's another. Uh, this article's in the the ABC uh, from a couple of days ago. Did the Reserve Bank's money printing cause inflation? The bank says it's complicated.
1: <laughs> Is that what Fox says? Yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> uh, it's complicated. Did you kick this over? No, it's complicated. <laughs> <laughs> it's complicated. <laughs> bit of gravity, bit of inertia. It's complicated.
0: Yeah, yeah, yeah. You really need to understand Einstein's uh, special theory of <laughs> relativity for me to explain this to your father. Well, I do. It's a good thing that
1: I do. So did you read this article, Tony? I did. I did. I learned a fair bit. I mean, it, it is complicated. There's far much more going on in the Reserve Bank than I ever thought. However, they still, <laughs> you still scratch my head and say, how did I do it, really? There's, there's certainly value creation out of nothing going on somewhere.
0: So they're basically trying to say, look, uh, the inflation, well, uh, you know, it's not really because we were printing money. It's got to do with velocity of money. It's got to do with uh, the kinds of money that are out there. They've got all these different categories of money, money base, M1, M3, broad money, uh, so I don't know. What did you? What did did you? Did you buy it at the end of the day? Do you think it's uh, more complicated or less
1: complicated? Oh, it's more complicated. But having said, I mean, how the RBA works, I think, is more complicated. Go back to the headline. Did the Reserve Bank's money printing cause inflation? It it did a little bit, but like I said last week, it's more to do with supply chain and COVID, I think, and energy than printing money. So. The corollary, should they use rising interest rates to tame inflation, is it's not going to work. It'll work partly, or if it works, it's because it's crashing the economy. It's not solving the underlying problems, which the RBA can't solve. So that was my key takeaway to to this whole thing. But it's almost like the tides, isn't it? It's like we may go into recession quick, cut interest rates, buy bonds, flood the market with money, pump prime the economy. Oops, too much. Now the tide's gone the other way. Let's. Let's take money off the table. Let's let's uh, you know raise interest rates by by selling or buying bonds. Yeah, it's it's the tides going back and forward, but is it really having a, an effect? I guess it, it well it is obviously, but is it the best way to have the effect wanted? And and look, you know, it's um I mean it's all these kinds of thoughts are playing out right now. And if you look at the UK, I mean, what are they smoking over there? <laughs> their, their their central bank is hurriedly raising interest rates. And the new government comes in and says, well, we can solve this. We'll just eliminate the top marginal tax rate. <laughs> we'll, give, we'll give money to to rich people to spend. It, it's, it's absurd. As, as one commentator said, that it's a canoe with two paddles and they're both going in opposite directions at the moment, fiscal and monetary policy. So that's not going to work. That's been happening to some extent in the US with, uh, you know, Biden's put a lot of money back into the economy. And my thoughts are that will probably stop after the midterm elections. He's obviously been electioneering for votes. But whenever a government does that, fiscal and monetary policies are at loggerheads. Um, Interest rates are having to be raised quicker and further in the US because there's too much money in the economy, Um, as well as all the other problems with COVID and um, energy prices. It's like you've got two chefs in the kitchen. One's fiscal and one's monetary. I remember having a similar sort of conversation in reverse when COVID was around it that the central bank was lowering interest rates, but the government was, was raising taxes at the same time. So it was like they weren't working together in unison. So I don't know the answer. If it was me, I'd put some more rules around the RBA and limit their remit and try and have some better link to the government to, to match fiscal and monetary policy. But uh, I, I, like I said last week, I, it's not going to end well. I'm, I'm completely amazed at how, Uncoordinated the approach to inflation is,
0: but they're supposed to be de- supposed to be independent from the government, right? Isn't that sort of the point of having the
1: RBA at arm's length from the government? Yeah. So, and it is, and if I, I once drilled down into that because I kind of scratched my head on why that was important. Because, like, the, yeah, you elect the government, right? You could make a case to say they should be in charge of interest rates. The problem with putting the government in charge of the Reserve Bank is that they can print money, and then, and they can start hyperinflation because they want to appear good to the voters and balance their budget or do away with their their debt and uh, and those kinds of things so i get that but yeah there needs to be some kind of coordinated approach between fiscal and monetary policy it's just not being solved with one actor pulling one lever and one actor pulling another lever in different directions
0: so the bottom line is, as you said last week, you, you think that uh, all of the money printing that went on probably has had uh, some impact on the current inflation, but there's a lot of uh, international factors playing here too that our government and the RBA really can't do much about.
1: Yes, but we can do a lot about it. I mean, For a start, the raising of interest rates would have happened a lot quicker and a lot sooner, which would have been a lot healthier. And helpful if property prices were included in the inflation figures and they're not. And I think that's a mistake. And I think they were taken out, you know, for political reasons. And I think they should be put back in. So when the RBA flooded the market with cheap money and people were stuck at home, they paid more for homes. And and we had a, a large property increase. I, I could even call it a bubble. That would have been the time to start raising rates because that's not good for the economy for all sorts of reasons about people getting access to accommodation notwithstanding but also the fact that you're creating a bubble in the one asset that's that's you know the largest in australia in terms of you know individual ownership so there are wrinkles in the system and it's just it's it's working as a very blunt tool and it needs updating
0: well i'm glad you understand what's going on because it's all
1: <laughs> over my I'm head not sure i'm not sure i do i've just seen it all before
0: All of this has happened before and all of this will happen again, as they said in Battlestar Galactica. My last news story was... uh, Yeah, the (laughs) remake, yeah. Uh, This is also from The Fin, John Kehoe, the economics editor. Labor added again in surprise move on dividends. The Albanese government has shocked investors by proposing to retrospectively stop companies paying shareholders fully franked dividends that are funded by capital raisings... I remember the last time the Labor government were talking about uh, messing around with fully frank dividends, you weren't very happy about it. This one's—they're talking about it being retrospective, going back to 2016. That seems a little bit uh, dodgy.
1: Yeah, I agree. Gough Whitlam famously said, "I, I don't agree with retrospective taxation, except or retrospectivity, except for abortion." In your case, <laughs> which is a great <laughs> lie. <laughs> And yeah, I, I can't see the case for retrospectivity in this, in this particular application or, or in generally any application, really. It's what's happened has happened. And if you've, unless you're committing murder and they retrospectively apply it, it's, um, you know, you, you can't go back and change the way people have invested. They did it based on the current rules. But um, so Labour arguably lost the last election, not, not sorry, the one before last. Uh, they won the last one and they're in power. But the one before that, they lost, uh, among other things, because of uh, their attack attack on things like franking credits. I'm surprised they're raising this again. It's a very narrow one this time. What they're seeking to to stop is uh, companies or LICs or whatever that have franking credits on their accounts that they can't uh, distribute because they're either not paying dividends or not paying enough in dividends and the franking credits get attached to those dividends. Occasionally, from time to time, investors will lobby those companies to do a capital raising and then distribute a dividend. You know, that's fair enough. I I don't have a problem with that. I don't see what the problem is in raising capital and then distributing it if it gets rid of the, takes the franking credits off the book. And the people who are putting capital into the company knew that was the reason for it and agreed with the reason, that was the reason for it and put the money in. So I don't see a problem. Already tax accountants are coming out saying, hey, this may stop you know big companies from doing dividend reinvestment plans if they're underwritten, because it's a kind of form of capital raising to pay for a dividend reinvestment plan. So there, there might be some unintended consequences. I just don't know why they're fighting this fight. It's, it's not a big deal. Jim Chalmers even came out and said it's going to be worth $10 million of tax revenue to us. So that's, that's bugger all. He's certainly got bigger issues on his desk than this one. Uh, it's very strange.
0: So apparently when uh, Scott Morrison was treasurer back in 2016, uh, he said the Liberal Party was going to do this, but then never got around to it. He was too busy... Signing himself up to uh, secret ministries and uh, funding the Governor-General's Fund, (laughs) whatever, Leadership Fund. Yes, well,
1: he he asked the Treasurer, turned around and asked the Treasurer, and Scott Morrison said no. (laughs) Looked in the mirror. Yeah. I suspect what happened back then, Cam, was that they announced it and then got feedback to say this is dumb and then didn't go ahead with it.
0: Yeah, but but apparently they thought it was a good idea, so both – parties, uh, the coalition and the Labor Party both seem to think this is a good idea. The, The explanatory material accompanying the new draft legislation says it's to prevent entities from manipulating the imputation system to obtain inappropriate access to franking credits. So they don't think this is a legit way of distributing franking credits, apparently.
1: So the tax office takes the view that it could be rorted. And technically they're correct and it could be rorted in a large way. So what the tax office is banking on is the fact that there are a certain percentage of companies out there who don't distribute their franking credits and and therefore the tax office doesn't have to give, It's like that's like a win for the tax office. They don't have to give people credits on their tax returns or even pay back actual cash to people who are on low tax rates like uh, retirees, for example. So that's why the tax office is putting this forward. And the case is basically that if people latch onto this in a big way and enough companies or enough LICs borrow money to release all the franking credits, we're going to have a big bill. So technically, that's correct. And that might happen in the future. So that's why they're pushing this case. But it hasn't happened to date. And it hasn't happened to date because I don't think the economics stack up that well to go to your investors and say, hey. Give us some more capital, and we'll pay a dividend and give it back to you with franking credits. The franking credits—it's playing around on the margin to some extent because, first of all, dividend yields are usually around, say, four percent, and then the franking credits—a fraction of that. So it's, you know, it's going to be a sort of one to two percent improvement in the in the returns from the company for all that mucking around of raising money and then distributing it again. It's not high on the agenda for most uh, funds to to seek this uh, with with companies. So. It hasn't been a problem in the past. I I just think that they're they're on a hiding to nothing with this one.
0: Mm. And what are the impacts to us as investors? I know Jeff Wilson's not too happy about it. What are the real impacts
1: to us if this goes ahead? Uh, I haven't really delved into it with Jeff's case. I know Jeff successfully led a campaign many years ago to say that an LIC, in the past the prior law was an LIC could not pay a dividend if it didn't make any profit. And last week I spoke about the K, the times when LICs don't make a profit because they haven't sold anything, but they're sitting on large paper profits. So the LIC is still a good investment, even though it's not it's not making a profit in an accounting sense. What Jeff lobbied for and and achieved was a change in the law to say that if there was retained profits or or other assets on the balance sheet that could be used to pay a dividend, even though the LIC did not make a profit that half or that year. Uh, they could still pay out a dividend. And he's very focused on his suite of LICs paying out a, a high yield. That's what attracts a lot of people to, particularly Wham Capital, the biggest of his, his LICs. I think last time I had a look, it was probably on at least 5% yield. And then Fully Frank grossed up, it's on more than that, you know, sort of seven and a half, eight 8% yield. So he's worried that there might be an implication whereby if he technically doesn't make a profit in his LIC. That somehow it's seen as a capital raising if he pays it out of retained earnings, so that's my guess, but uh, I, you know I haven't delved into it too deeply.
0: All right, well thanks for that. Uh, I thought I'd do a portfolio update, uh, dummy portfolio since inception, which as we said, is just over the three-year mark, currently tracking at 12.96 percent per annum, not quite the 15, but it oh, would have been gone 15, down. It was well, a week ago, it was 18. Yeah, <laughs> Now it's down to nearly 13 after the last week versus the SPDR 200 fund, which is at 4.46% over the same time period. So we're outperforming by roughly, you know, not quite three, I guess. I don't know what that is, but, you know, two point something.
1: So the index has fallen quite a bit too, hasn't it?
0: Yeah, it was about 6.66 last week. No, sorry, a month ago. A month ago, it was 6.66. We were 18.51. We've dropped down. Uh, You go back to July 21, we were running at 38.74% per annum versus 9.3 for the SBR 200. It's halved. We've come down by 60%. So it's been been a rough year and a bit for our portfolio. In the last you know a couple of days done a bit of trading um last week actually I've sold off yankol uh, pwr bought and sold pwr bought it one day sold it the next bfg sold that mqg i sold last week TER i sold last week and uh, that's it the only buy i've had in the last week was pwr and then sold it the next day as i said so um it's been really hard to find anything that's not a Josephine or uh, not having a down day in the last week. It's been um,
1: been really tough. Yes, it has been, especially the last twenty four hours. The market's up a little bit today, but Wall Street was down again. So I'm not sure how long that rally is going to last. But yeah, I sold seven of my stocks in the last twenty four hours as well. Wow, it's been tough. But those those numbers, though, over the longer term, I mean, they're illustrative of the fact that we we tend to follow the ASX uh, index in terms of direction, but we still outperform. I guess that's one of the things that i found over the years is that we operate in the same market. So you know, the market goes up, the market goes down and our portfolio does too, but it, it still tends to outperform or does outperform over the long term. It just does directly still follow the way that the index is going.
0: Well, we're still outperforming and I guess that's all we can really aim for. If I look back, uh, what was last week? Say so the 20th Yeah, we were 15.65 last week versus 5.84 for the SBR 200. So it's been a brutal week for us.
1: And the market too.
0: Yeah, but compared to the top funds in Australia, uh, we're up there. Top top five, easy. So, you know, it's all relative.
1: Yeah, and I I guess to put it in perspective, it has been a kind of brutal 24 hours and last week wasn't great either. You know, these are, I mean, this is part of investing. These are tidal flows. The tide comes in, the tide goes out. The thing that I take solace in is the fact that I've now got some cash and when things turn around, I can invest it. But also too, I haven't been wiped out. No one gets wiped out using this process, right? We we can drop performance and that's you know hard to take emotionally, but we don't get wiped out because we sell up and, and move out beforehand. And that's why even you know, repeatedly over the last three years and even why as late as last week, I was saying, look, don't. Don't margin lend in times like this. Don't borrow too much. Just keep your keep your powder dry uh, and and wait for a, a definite turn in the market before getting back in. Really? Yeah. Well, I, I'm still using the same system to to sell things. So the rule ones and the three point trend lines. And that's that's when we can't find anything else to buy, then that goes to cash, and we wait for it to, to the good times to come round again. So we're not being wiped out. But if you're if you're leveraging A lot, particularly into this kind of volatile market, which is going against us at the moment, you can get wiped out. You know, Buffett famously said if he'd margin loaned Berkshire Hathaway, he would have been wiped out twice during his life.
0: No, I meant uh, sorry, when you said wait for the market to turn around, you're still buying stuff if it turns up as a buy on the buy list, right?
1: Correct, yeah. If it's not Josephine, if it's having an update, all those things, yeah. So I did buy some more Whitehaven coal today, but that was the only thing I could find to buy. I might have to do that with the dummy is,
0: you know, look at things that we already own and double up on some stuff if they're buys. I think it's still going to be hard to find anything.
1: Yeah, I think that's fine.
0: Put some of that money back to work. What else have you got to talk about today, TK?
1: Yeah. So, uh, I mean, I don't want to labour the RBA again, but just one thing that struck me out of all the the writings on the weekend and, and last week about the RBA is it's not going to pay a dividend this year. So, While interest rates are are going down, which means, if you remember, interest rates are the reverse of what's happening with the capital gain or loss on the bond. Bonds have been gaining in capital. And so the RBA sitting on all those bonds uh, has been making money on paper and then paying a dividend of about $2 billion a year to the government. That's not going to happen this year. And it's actually, if it was a company, a separate company, it would be trading in solvent. So it's uh, Liabilities now outweigh its assets because of all the bond write downs it's had to do in the last six months because of rising bonds. And and wouldn't you know it, they were buying bonds during the QE phase. So they've they've stocked up and now they're they're suffering from that too. The last time I remember this happening, it didn't end well, and the government actually had to inject billions of dollars onto the RBA balance sheet to to keep it operating. So watch this space. It may not happen again this time and hopefully it won't, but um it's not going to pay a dividend for the foreseeable future, and that's not the end of the world. I mean, the government is making a lot of money out of mining taxes, in particular, with the uh, first of all the iron ore boom and now the, um, the coal boom going on. So the government aren't crying poor, but um, it's just again one of these interesting intricacies with the uh, RBA that, um, as far as the accountants are concerned, it shouldn't be it shouldn't be operating, and it's now it's now sitting on a big loss. Anyway couple of stocks in the news during the week. So uh, I, up until yesterday, I'd owned Viva Energy, which is the old shell business, uh, which I used to work for. And uh, they were in the news because they bought back the Coles Express retail sites. So the fuel business was uh, uh, leased over to Coles 15 or so years ago, back when shopper dockets were first introduced and they were all the rage. and And they created a big a big increase in volume for for Shell and and BP and Caltex in particular, which align themselves with the shopper dockets. At least Shell and Caltex did. I'm not sure about BP, but Shell and Caltex did. Coles has decided it's going to end that that uh, deal a bit early, and Shell are very happy to take the back the operation and the profit of the uh, the retail sites. And it's I guess a good time. So 15 years ago, the retail market wasn't earning anything at all out of petrol sales and all the you know, the income was coming through the convenience store. That income through convenience is still there, but the retail petrol margins are strong again. So um, Shell or Viva Energy is happy to buy it back. Other two stocks in the news, Whitehaven Coal has announced a $2 billion buyback. And that suggests to me that uh, they see that uh, the mega profits in coal are set to continue. They wouldn't be buying back their stock if they thought that uh, the coal price was going to uh, to to drop off any in, in any sort of meaningful way. And lastly, one for you, Cam. I saw uh, in the paper on the weekend Apollo shares, Apollo tourism and leisure shares, uh, went up because they uh, they, they beat.
0: <laughs> like somebody's buying something that they're selling, but it ain't me. <laughs>
1: Yeah, so Apollo Tourism and Leisure have been trying to merge with a, a New Zealand company called Tourism Holdings for a while, uh, for the last six months, and the competition regulators haven't liked it because it lessens competition uh, in that sort of uh, holiday camper van rental market. And then they, uh, Apollo announced last week that they were going to sell off some assets to their competitor, Juicy which operates uh, camper vans, and also they're going to sell their Star rental brand as well, in the hope that that was going to appease the competition regulators' concerns about uh, having too much concentration in the in the proposed merged company. And uh, on the basis of that, the Apollo shares re-rated to be closer to what the valuation is if the merger goes through. So, uh, three shares in the market from our buy list.
0: And that's the end of the free episode of QAV for this week. If you're a new listener, I just should let you know how this works. So We have a free episode every week. runs for about half an hour. We have a premium episode also every week. It goes for another 30 to 60 minutes, depending on how many questions we get. It's where Tony answers questions from our club members. If you want to check out the premium episodes and all the other benefits of being a QAV club member, which is access to the checklist and, and the Bible and uh, the private Facebook groups and the other comms channels that we have in, Invites to the dinners, Zoom calls, etc., etc. Sign up for the two week free trial and check all that stuff out. You can do that at QAVpodcast.com.au. Look for the um, free trial button there. And if you uh, like the idea of value investing QAV style but don't feel like you have the time or resources to do you know, learn how to do QAV for yourself. Think about signing up for QAV Lite. That's our relatively new service where we send you the stock tips every week. And then we also monitor those stocks in a portfolio and if they become a sell we email our QAV light members and tell them that it's time to sell that stock and what to replace it with. Check that out too. Um, it's sort of a low effort way of doing QAV. Still better if you know how to do it yourself, I think, because Tony could get hit by a bus and then where are you? But, you know, while he's not, <laughs> we can do this. So check that out, qavpodcast.com.au slash G L-I-G-H-T. That's it. Um, If you don't want to sign up to any of those, just keep listening to the free episodes. And if you have any questions, uh, shoot me an email. You'll find that on our website too. All right. Have a great week and good luck with your investing. The QAV Podcast is a production of Spacecraft Publishing Proprietary Limited, authorised representative of AFSL 520442, AFS representative number 001292718. Please don't make any investment decisions based solely on listening to this podcast. This is presented as general advice only, not personal financial advice. We don't know your personal financial circumstances. Please see a financial planner before making any investing decisions.